Okay, as always, let's give everyone a bit of time to get your audio, maybe get your video sorted. Lovely to see some of your faces. Hope you, like me, have a warm drink in hand. It's off screen, but I have a warm drink in hand and ready for the next hour when we talk about shame. So uh, my name is Stanford. I am a doctor in uh, specifically men mental health at the moment, psychiatry. I'm also a yoga teacher, also training with Colin for yoga therapy. And I'll let Colin introduce himself. Hi, my name's Colin. Um, I'm a yoga therapist. And we've got a, a subject today called shame. Um, it, it, it's, I would say it's probably one of the most difficult subjects to talk about. Um, genuinely, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a complicated mix of emotions. Um, and I don't think it's possible to sum up really the power that shame has. Just reflecting on it, there's a number of questions that, that come up when we kind of think about shame. Um, for me, the, you know, the starting point is, it, is it an emotion that all of us have? You know, is it something that everyone has? Does everyone actually have shame? And my next question is, what purpose does it serve? Because I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, you've got shame, but what actual purpose does it serve? It's got to have some kind of reason. You've got this kind of feeling. What, what's the reason for that feeling? What's it triggered by? So what are actually the triggers of shame? What situations give us shame? And are we born with shame or do we actually learn shame? Um, is some shame ingrained in our society? Is it actually ingrained in our culture? Is it ingrained in our families? Um, what feelings are associated with shame? Because if, if shame is a complex mix of emotions, what, what are the other feelings? What are the other emotions that are associated with it? And how long does it actually last? I mean, is it something that is just a, a small amount or is it a long thing? And then my other thinking around this is, is the uh, is the short-term shame and then long-term shame? You know, is is there kind of like a is there a difference between these things? And um then I was thinking, how deep does shame actually go? You know, where how deep within us is shame actually? Um, then my next question is, how does it influence our behaviour? You know, what are the roots? How does it actually influence our behaviour? How does this, how does shame change our behaviour? And what does it do to our personalities? And... Shame almost has a power. So what gives power to shame? Um, and, it, and is shame something that holds us back or is actually shame something that motivates us? Um, can we manipulate, manipulate it if we have shame? And so these are the sort of, you know, what, what do we do about shame? So these are the sort of ideas that I was just kind of like, I just and questions that I just sort of had around shame. Um, we haven't even defined shame. So it was just, I don't know, what, what, were you, what were you thinking, Stanford? Uh, well, I love all your outline and question, as always. I, as you said all that, I remember the feeling when you suggested shame as the topic for S. I'm going to blame you. I'm so going to blame you for this one, because 
Uh, we can, we toy with a few other ideas. There are lots of other things we can talk about with S, um, sleepy head like one of them. Um, but I think we ended up with shame because a lot of the other ideas we 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 have gone through. But also shame is an emotion that, as you said, I think most of us, or I dare I say it, all of us can relate to and resonate with. But at the same time, it's something quite hard to put our finger onto it. And I remember one of my reservations about talking about shame is how am I going to talk about it from a medical point of view? Because it's you can talk about it religiously, you can talk about it philosophically, you can talk about it culturally, with identity, with um, in our relationship or interaction or childhood and experience and memories. But how do I talk about it medically? And I, and I realized one of the starting points that I can always go from is um, the sick, the sick row, the sick row. So like the patient's row in the medical world. And that's why I thought, ah, yes, I can at least always go from that and see where the conversation lead. Because, because in, at least in the old, old tradition, patients, they, have, they assume a role where immediately then you most often not get blamed for what has been done onto them uh, or what happened onto them like uh, rather it's injury accident trauma or it's a disease inherited or um, later on caused in life they are also in this road that way where they're exempted for most of the social duties as well so they don't need to go to job they can be exempted from um, engagement so on and so forth and they have this um, kind of responsibility to get better as soon as they can and to by that they might go to get uh, appropriate medical care in order to achieve that but whenever you I really think about it because I have done a little bit of study on this as well um, the first and the third points almost contradict each other a little bit because it's not within their responsibility or they're not blamed so to speak um, that they got sick but at the same time, they have the responsibility to get well as soon as they can and in, you know, to their ability, to the best of their ability. And in some way that put the responsibility onto them or, you know, I have more than once hear from people who are chronically ill, they, they feel a little bit ashamed that they can't really fully integrate into society or they become a burden on their family, their loved ones, because they simply can't get better or they perceive that they can't get better. And, and I realized, yes, that is something that I, I see quite often, actually, especially in the mental health setting. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I come from, because, as you said, it is a, it's a very mixed bag of emotion. And I think everyone would define it slightly differently. But I think it always comes from a very self-conscious place. And most of the time it's quite negative. It's a negative evaluation of the self. I, I don't know. What do, what do you think about that, Colin? Um, I love this. There's three different things that you said there, which, which I, I'm kind of picking out right now. Um, the first is about responsibility, um, and it's the, the idea of someone's responsibility to get back into society, and their responsibility to, and and the feeling that they have that they can't get better, and also this idea with responsibility and the relying on loved ones. If we kind of break this out a little bit more actually, because if we start to define shame, I mean, shame is given as a, as a feeling, 
So there is a feeling and the feeling is a painful feeling. So there's there's pain associated with it. So this is the first thing. So there's a painful feeling. And the feeling is one of, it's to do with, and some of the definitions talk about the word humiliation, which for me, humiliation or distress is, is linked to our personality and our belief system. And so it's linked to our ego. Um, and then there is, uh, and, and it's this feeling, which is a, a painful feeling of humiliation, it's caused, so there is an actual cause of this because of behaviour. And the behaviour is one that someone perceives as being wrong. So it's not the right type of behaviour. So what we do is we get, we have a number of things. We've got, a, a sort of, I mean, there's a kind of like a mix of stuff going on and we can apply this to different case studies again and again and again, because one is that there's this feeling inside and the feeling is quite difficult to articulate. It's kind of like a feeling of pain. And the pain is like a, almost a constriction very much in here, but it comes out in lots of different ways. So it's constricted here, it affects the mind in a really kind of negative way. So there's a kind of a loop that goes on, quite a lot of self-harm that happens with it, quite a lot of criticism that happens with it. And there also tends to be sort of a lot of agitation of the body, sort of stomach issues and stuff like this. So there's like almost a combination of these sort of things that are happening. Um, there is feeling and the feeling gives often gives a heightened sensitivity. Um, and it's one of humiliation, one of the actually it's to do with, there has been a change in who I thought I was or who I think I am. There's, there's something's been affected at this level. And it means that we're looking at our pride, our, ego our belief in ourselves and there is some sort of there's been a, some sort of awareness either by ourselves or by someone else on our behavior because shame is something that we can inflict on ourselves or shame is something that other people can inflict on us so it can come in in several different ways i use the word inflict because it, it's kind of like it's a painful tool you know, I don't know if any of you guys have have, have been out somewhere and um, you've done something like I do sometimes, which is I, I whack a bottle of red wine over a carpet because I'm quite clumsy and I don't drink. And it just kind of, you knock it over and, and it's someone's brand and you you sit there with towels trying to get the whole thing up. And and I, I'm just kind of like doing this. And then I leave at the end of the evening and I go through the evening just kind of going, oh my God, what did I do? I ruined everything. It's a disaster. I'm the biggest idiot in the world. I'm so clumsy. I always do this. They must think I'm, you know, and I, it, it, it's kind of, it's shameful. Do you see what I mean? Because it's something that we perceive as wrong, the wrong thing to do. And there's an awareness of an action or behavior. And I'm, I'm giving this kind of like examples because actually, as we start to, Stamp and I start to talk about this, we'll uncover it more and more because actually it, it runs deep and it's connected to lots of other patterning. And that's the interesting thing is that, it, it, because I think shame is a beautiful thing in one way, but it's a curse in another way. And so it's just, we've now got to sort of unpick it as it were, um, because we perceive these things as wrong.
Does this make any sense, David? It does, and um, I, I like I like how you brought up embarrassment and give them an example because when I was looking at it, embarrassment and guilt are actually very often kind of the cynicism of shame as well. Is some people say they're very much the same. Some people say they're very much different. Most of these people are philosophers, so they can argue until the the last breath. I suspect um, some say you know you can be shameful if it's just part of you some people say you can be shameful if it's about yourself whilst guilt is about an action that you do and that guilt is more about the whole of yourself and and, and then again some that change but i think ultimately we're talking very much the same facility of emotion so i think for the rest of the talk i'm very much going to kind of lump them together and if every now and then i interchange the terms that that, that might be the reason but I find it very interesting when you said how it can be a beautiful thing as well as a harmful thing. I do wonder, do you, do you find that, because you very much are a Western born and bred, I, I, I know, and, but you, you learn a very Eastern art or philosophy, which is yoga and Ayurveda. And I come from the East, but actually now have lived, lived in the West for so long. And I do find there's some asymmetry I think might be the best word between how the east and the west view shame because mm -hmm. uh, at least in the modern psychology I think a lot of the time shame is about embarrassment how how we felt we can make a fool of ourselves we, we've made a mistake or we appear to be stupid or done something wrong rather is an actual guideline or is actually you know a perceived restrictions however in the in, in the east shame as you said sometimes actually the, the boundary is more with other people the boundary is not so much internalized it's about offending other people and it's things that we know we shouldn't do because they will harm someone else or, or we would just, um, kind of piss off someone else so to speak and, and I, I wonder if that distinction change how, how shame manifests and, and what does it effect onto it. And I have some thought, but I want to hear Colin's thought onto that first. <laughs> okay, so um, it's very interesting because in, in yoga, we, we've got two texts that are quite interesting um, with regard to shame. The first one is the Bhagavad Gita. I don't know if you guys know this. It's a very interesting text. It's um, there's a young prince who he has to get involved in a fight, and he doesn't want to get involved in this fight. And he's creating lots and lots and lots of different behaviors. So in the first chapter of his eighteen chapters, of this book, he's creating lots of different sort of behaviors. He's and he's going, I can't do this. You know, this is beyond me. He's giving lots of signs and symptoms. And we get to the second chapter. In the second chapter, it actually says that the first chapter is all really about shame. It's about when we find ourselves in a situation where what's happened is that in this situation, we are not able to face and do what we're tasked to do in this world and know we have to do in this world and we don't step up to it and almost avoid what we need to do 
and they define this as being dharma this this kind of the, what what role what's the purpose of my life why am i here what holds me in this world and i'm not stepping up to doing that then that is a shameful act and so the whole process of the bhagavad gita through 18 chapters is about dealing with this and I'll talk more about the second chapter in a minute, but it becomes quite interesting because what it means is that you, that shame is associated as a measuring point to understand our moral integrity and our framework of operation, authentic operation in the world. Does that make any sense, Durford? Yes. And, and I think that, that often echoes a lot of how scripture used the word shame. I find some reference in the Bible, some reference in Confucius, um, the, the Chinese philosopher, and, and they very much use shame to kind of encourage moral behavior and how, how, to, to, to almost one determine society in a society what what is the moral behavior and also internally what's your moral behavior in in in, in the Chinese philosophy uh, configures which is one of the biggest personnel out there um, he, I'm translating so yeah I'm, it may be slightly wrong is she talked about how knowing shame is kind of like the first step and or get you a little bit closer to have the courage. And the courage is about to face your own mistake and your own shortcoming. Mm. And it's the first step because once you realize your own shortcoming, you can face it and then you can then change it. And it's one of the kind of the, the three most important internal value that he holds um, for his student as well, his kind of philosophy. And interestingly, in, 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 in the Christian or the Judaism Bible, I saw something very, very similar in my research, Psalm 34, 4 and 5, I think. I saw the Lord and he answered me. He delivered, he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. So it's kind of equating, you know, if you follow the words of the Lord and the guidelines and the teaching, then, you, then you're radiant and you don't really face up people with shame. And it, it seems to give this construct where it, it, it's the teaching of how we should operate in the world. But, that, but that's what I find very interesting because in the older teaching, that seems to be about us interacting with other people. But now I somehow felt the more um, recent research and teaching that I found is more about the internalized feeling, the embarrassment. I don't know if you feel the same, but I, I think that seems to be the feeling that I'm getting. The more, uh, the more recent philosopher discussion and things like that, it talk often, more often than not talk about the embarrassment, the, the actual internal um, restrictions and constrictions that Colin talked about. And that, that seems to, the focus seems to have shifted a little bit. And I, I thought that was interesting because I'm not sure if that's an Eastern versus Western change or asymmetry or is that more an older age teaching versus modern days feeling uh, i'm not sure about that either um but yeah i, I was just gonna thinking uh, as i'm talking as well and as colin was talking bella's point about how did the internet and social media has uh, amplified our sense of public shaming i felt 
the internet and definitely the social media has at least amplified and very much accelerated the human communication and interaction like it used to be much harder I mean I grew up in the day and age of calling and texting but I still have written a few letters here and there and you know the interaction for what well, is very much one-to-one every now and then I get a freeway phone call uh, and it takes a lot longer and nowadays it takes a lot of 30 seconds or less to type a message a tweet a post and I felt like that the, at least the acceleration means that there's more opportunity for us to feel shameful just because there are more interaction I don't know that's that's how I felt about it Colin What, what I really like is, I like what you've just defined, as in, in the first instance, in a way, um, and if we look at as there's a, a text, um, something like the Yoga Yagnavalkya Samhita, um, in the second chapter, um, Shloka 10, it, it says that, uh, and niyam, which is an attitude that you cultivate towards yourself, is not putting others to shame. So you're actually looking at practicing, cultivating something within yourself about not putting others to shame based on their inability to do certain activities and knowledge that they have. So we've got this with regard to the way that we integrate an attitude we have to ourselves we've got the attitude that we have to other people we've got a measure of attitude from something higher so a moral framework that holds our society together so in a way we've and, and i think the older texts where we get shame mentioned are all about bringing people together and creating a society that comes together so I think that in that sense, we've got that sort of way of, of, in this way, just bringing people together with a moral framework that we can all adhere to, and we know what is right and what's wrong. Um, this for me is, is, is almost the first step. The next thing is that you've then got this idea of having a relationship with other people where not to shame someone else you know, to keep a measure on society so that you actually don't put, you, you look at your interaction with other people so that actually you don't shame them. You understand your timing with regard to saying things and doing things. Um, in particular, they, they use the word khri, um, which is a female, feminine word, so it's not to shame, to ensure that you keep a moral integrity with regard to this type of relationships. Um, and then I think, there's an evolution now more towards oneself. And again, very, very self-centered currently in this world at the moment. Um, so I think that what we're seeing is that an evolution over time from consideration of the whole and the whole unit and bringing the whole unit together with one common goal as being a whole society to understanding differences within ourselves. Um, because there's a lot of judgment, shame comes with judgment, doesn't it? So there's judgment with shame. And so there's this judgment thing going on. And shame can be used to manipulate people, to move people, make people do things based on how you position the statements that are actually made. 
And then there is, and how you do it. So you can shame someone else in front of other people to do something. You know, it's, it's how, do you, how do you use words in particular ways? And then we've also got the relationship we have with ourselves based on the actions that we do. And how do we know what morally is right and wrong? What, what, is, what is our integrity? So for me, if I take a scenario, um, do you know, Samford, I used to work at a pupil referral unit. Do you know what those are? So a pupil referral unit is a, a place where we send excluded young people. And um, so they're excluded from school, mainstream school, and they're all put together. It's, it's, it's a wonderful environment. And there was a young man there who was, he was, he was hard, you know, he was one of those sort of hard guys. And he and a friend went out at lunchtime and came back again, and they'd been, they'd been mugged at knife point. So they'd actually been mugged at knife point and um, came back and there was, it, there was a whole load of drama around the whole thing. And all the drama was created out of the shame because in the first instance, there was a, there was a perception of who this hard man thought he was. And you know, these were based on the integrity and the moral values. He'd stick up for a friend of his. And what happened is someone came up with a knife and, and went up with, with a knife and said, you know, hand over all the money. And this guy said, just, just give him all the money, give him all the money. And so his, his facade of being this hard guy just kind of crumbled in that one moment. And these are linked to the integrity and the values that this man had, you know, he thought he was, he believed about himself. And it was also what he was looking to present to other people as well. So he was trying to present this thing, this is who I am to other people, and other people were buying into this thing. And then when a situation came along, which challenged his belief and his understanding, it brought to the surface the incoherence that he, and he hadn't actually seen. And it challenged the integrity of the moral beliefs that he thought he had and that he wanted other people to see. And so in a way, the shame mechanism kicked in. Instead of discovering more about who he actually was, he needed to create a huge drama and distraction and denial to cover the whole thing up, to change the story, to hide things, to bury things, to change lots of things in order not to deal with the pressure that was imposed upon him by all of these different things happening. Does this make any sense? Yes, and I, I love how you brought out the topic of public image as well, how, yes, it's about moral standard behavior integrity, but at the same time, also it really very much linked to public image, how how we like other people or how we prefer other people to see us and to how we actually, who we actually are and how we actually behave. Mm. And I think rather we like it or not, we, we all have this discrepancy because it, it's just part of life. You, you show a different side of yourself in the friend setting. And I think the doctor Stanford versus the private Stanford and the yoga student and yoga teacher Stanford, they're all 
in a lot of ways, quite, quite different people. They are the same person. Hopefully they're all me, but they, they, they are different in different ways. I wouldn't be able to talk to my patient just how I like to talk to my friends sometime or my yoga students sometime and vice versa. Yeah. And I think sometimes that embarrassment or that, that, that shame comes from when kind of the other party discovered that side that I was not hiding, but I didn't want them to see. And very much like what Della was saying, it's like, yes, it used to be so much easier to partition. Like, you know, something happened, you stay in closed door, maybe it's your family, big enough, it might be in your neighborhood. But nowadays it's so easy. Like we've seen so many, I don't know, maybe the best or the worst examples, celebrities where conversations that I've had in the past, photos, um, previous posts or who they've liked on social media and suddenly got shown. And I sometimes do think about it. It's like, well, they, they, we are all human beings. There are all parts of us that we want to keep private or to the selective few and to suddenly have that exposed, especially nowadays with internet and social media and stuff. It, it, it can definitely bring on a lot of shame and it, it, because we caught and prepared. And I think that's the other thing. We caught and prepared. That was the things that we, we try very much navigate other people away from and suddenly it got discovered and I think that's very much a very almost a fearful response I would say but the other thing I was thinking about what you said Colin was um about how how trying not to inflict shame on the other people mm. and of course I agree you know especially if you are deliberately shaming someone based on their color gender body shape identity whatever it may be then obviously that's wrong but I think the other side of it as you said because we very often inflict shame on ourselves rather is from our own thinking or rather is from our perceived interaction with others mm-hmm. how, how careful do we really have to be how, like, how how much do we have to catch ourselves because one, one thing that I, I noticed is, or at least I noted from my research is that at least it has, it definitely changed with age. Um, it says adolescents, the teenagers mo- most often feel the most amount of shame apparently across all age group. I think, I think that's usually, especially around the 16, 17 years old when you're, when you really establishing your identity from a psychological point of view, you are trying to break away from your nest, from your parents and your family, also your know, school as well, because either you're going to vocational training, your job, maybe university or college, you're very much trying to establish yourself. And that, that is the part when almost this, you almost feel the most vulnerable as well, because you are at the cusp of being independent, but you're still very, very much dependent on others. Mm. As we grow and develop into our kind of, they say middle age, but uh, probably somewhere between 30s to 50s, 60s, you feel more secure in yourself and shame don't often come as much. But then as we grow older, apparently we get a little bit more easily embarrassed again. Maybe it's because of authority, maybe because of our age. We're no longer in a prime. You start feeling your weakness, your own um, mortality. Or maybe, you know, you remember how you were before and you're no longer at that stage. And I'm just thinking that that's almost like a natural life cycle of shame. And how do we navigate really this maybe I will pose this question to you. How do we navigate through this life cycle to not self-inflict so much pain onto yourself? If we um, deconstruct shame, 
So I gave the story of the young boy and also with what you just said, Stanford. If we start to deconstruct it, I'd like to give another story of a, a wonderful lady who wanted to leave her bullying partner. And what we're talking about here is we're talking about perception. We're also talking about comparing. We're talking about norms as well. What is perceived as right and what is perceived as wrong. And the whole family saw one thing. The friendship group saw one thing. And this person was left without support and also thinking they were mad because everyone was perceiving certain things and no one was actually seeing what was really going on. So to actually have the courage to do what she then had to do, she was left with a whole feeling of shame because this was imposed because of the lack of support around, does this make any sense? Support from others? Support from others, acceptance from others. Because the question is really about right and wrong, because here, if we break it down, there's, there's identity, there's ego, there's identity that's going involved. So in both cases, there's, there's identity. There's identity, which is reference points, which are linked to our belief about what keeps us safe, what holds us in a safe way. And those are the reference points we have with regard to interacting with each other and ourselves. Then there's the role that we're taking. And this person had a role as a, as a partner and as a daughter and as a mother and as a friend. And so there was, there's the activities in that role that held her within her life. And those come with numbers of other, numbers of other things as well. They come with doubt, they come with fears, they come with, you know, am I the best mother I can be? You know, am I letting my family down by actually doing this? You know, how will I survive? What's, there's, there's numbers of questions about this. And this links very much to the belief in who we think we are. And then there's the action that we're doing. And you've, you've hit the nail on the head when you talk about comparing and also perception. Because the actions that we come to do and how we do those actions, we may perceive them in one way, but actually other people perceive them in very different ways and start to impose a judgment about what's right and wrong to us. And then we also have desire. You know, we, this person wanted a particular outcome. So there is desire very, very much involved in the whole equation with regard to this. I want to be perceived in a particular way. I want to be the best I can be. And actually, I can't be that, or I've just done an action. I want to do this, but someone else has made me feel another way, or I make myself feel that way. Then I love the word fear, because we're often frightened about what's going to happen. We're frightened of what we're actually going to lose, lose the support of people, other people, lose face. Um, be seen for who we really are instead of actually who we project out into the world, who we want the world to see who we are, like on Instagram. Um, we're frightened of all the pain that will actually come with the conflict of doing what we need to do. 
So there's the kind of like in the whole sort of mix, there's there's all of this. And of course, there'll be an attachment with it as well. There always is. And there will always be. And there's also an intention behind it. They're just kind of fueling this whole thing. You know, I can't stand that. I need to get out of this some more. So when you kind of mix all of these things together and, and begin to put them in, I, I like what you said about sort of the age of about sort of 14 to 16, the creation of these shameful ideas. And the idea of that a, and when we start to look at, and also think about the movement of shame, once it's been embedded within a person, let's say deep within a person, especially for a young girl, you know, something, you know, deeply embedded within a person. Um, so it's actually been, you know, very, very deeply embedded. And that can be recalled and re-triggered when a situation presents itself, which is not the same situation, or it could be a slightly different situation, but it can be recalled to create this shame cycle again and again. And I think that all the variable components will come in different ways, but the feelings then start to move. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yes, and I think I think that, that was why I was thinking a lot when you are when you say it's often manifested when it's without support mm. and I, I ask rather it's from other people because I think I think the examples I've seen or encountered mm. is most often is actually from within and I like how you said it's the embedment because that that is the ultimate key I, I see and I give my example which is Unfortunately, also another beautiful woman that I is one of my clients. Uh, so she she is really rather pretty, young professional, quite successful in her job in her role. Uh, also a bit of background, she's Asian, so she grew up with this mentality and this kind of upbringing that she would get pregnant, uh, get sorry, get get married early and then get pregnant and have a family. You know that that kind of expectation that we had um, in Asia. Um, and also keep working uh, as a working mom, as a working wife as well. Now, now in, in truth, she very much dedicated herself into her job and she really loves her job and she really enjoys it and finds a lot of joy from it. But because of this dedication, she doesn't have as much time to kind of date and to, to, to find relationship or find ones that suited to her. And uh, as my clients, we talked about how she compared herself with someone else that she knew who is going through a very, very painful divorce where uh, basically there's no longer any love or, you know, uh, good attachment between the couple. And they're going through a divorce that is turning rather ugly where there's a lot of fighting about things, properties, you know, back and forth by lawyers and things like that. And it was very interesting that she said something. She said, she is still, uh, she's pointing to the other person that she knows, the other woman that she knows, that she's still stronger than me because at least she got, uh, got um, married once. Mm. I was like, really interesting because you see what happened behind closed door already. You know the quality of their relationship. You know how much pain that is bringing to not just her, but to the husband, to everyone, to their family. And, and you still think that she's better than you despite the fact that you you don't really have all that mess and pain to deal with like yes because at least she had that and I thought that was quite powerful for me because I learned that oh wow actually sometimes when maybe on the 
offsets because objectively I found, oh, well, I know you're single, but you know, otherwise you have a good job. You seem to be enjoying it. Like you have a good construct of life where you get to actually enjoy yourself. There's a lot of opportunity to enjoy yourself. And at least you're not stuck in a relationship that is not working. But actually from her point of view, she must rather have the other one. And there's almost a shame attached to that that she didn't have that. And I thought that was very interesting because where did that come from? Mm. And when I was doing my research, there's an American psychologist called Joseph Bungo, B-U-R-G-O, just in case you want to look it up. And, and he gave a few subtypes, which may answer my question about this client. So sometimes shame comes from unrequited love, which I guess can be within your family, maybe with your mother, but also at the same time from a partner, maybe imaginary, imaginary or otherwise. And, and want her exposure, because I guess my client could probably feel quite exposed when she go back to her family and friends, especially back in Asia, where she might be the only single person in that circle. She might not, I don't know. There's an expectation. I think that's definitely one of the strongest when she puts an expectation for herself. And also this expectation was put onto her and she feel disappointed. So disappointed that she didn't achieve. And also at the same time being left out is coming very much coming back, you know, kind of that idea where you growing and getting the independence almost felt like everyone else got it. And you're the one, you're the one that has singled out and not got it. But ultimately, I don't know, I, I, I'm still not sure rather how was the proportion rather, rather is really being drilled into her or she is much better at absorbing it than others. Um, and I don't know, I, I did find it quite tricky to help her as well, because I felt like shame, like a lot of other emotions, something that you have to go through yourself. And until you have gone through it, until you got to the other side of it, you don't really, you can't really be helped by other people. I think this is what you're talking about here is, is actually very, very, it, it, it's, it's a combination of things. It, it's a combination of cultural shame family shame as well, individual shame, and almost the combination of these three together. Does that make sense? It's because there's many different pathways and patterns that are being imposed on this person. And the stories that are laid down about what is right and wrong, and also how we want to please other people by being good or being bad as a reference point. Because I found, I found a, um, a, a reference to someone that was shameless in a commentary of a, of a text, actually, um, a yoga text which is the opposite of someone that used shame to uphold the wisdom and knowledge that they have. So they said, you know, uh, 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 someone who's shameless is actually an outcast. There's someone that is angry and bears hatred. They're wicked and a hypocrite. They embrace error. They're full of deceit. They're an instigator. They have evil desires. They're envious. They're, they're wicked. They are shameless. And I found it very interesting because it, it's, there's, we, we just, we're almost, it, 
I think, programmed to want to do good in one way, you know, to actually appeal to doing good or to try and do good in one way. Does that make sense? And then we we then have all these kind of things that are imposed on us that actually create these fractures and fragments within us from a very early age. Like, you know, we're brought up to say you have to get married and you, you know, you're you're letting the family down if you don't, if you're if you're not kind of doing this within this certain program, you know, and then it's repeated when you go back um, and see a, a family member. They say, well, Oh, isn't this happening or that happening or the other thing happening? And you and you, you just you have that sense of trigger that happens again and again and again. Does that make sense, Sophie? Yes. <laughs> yes, go on, go on, go on. No, no, no. I was gonna because it, it, it's interesting because we've we've talked, we're talking about numbers of things. We're talking about individual shame and family shame and cultural shame and there's also societal shame as well so you know so we've got this kind of these these sort of levels of shame and then we've also on the other side of it we've got the stuff that we've talked about with regard to an individual but one of the questions I think is what to do about it because it You know, it is it is a very very hard thing to come to terms with, and many times we don't actually recognise we feel shameful. We actually don't recognise that we are in that. We actually attribute it to other feelings, like I feel sad or I feel low. You know, I'm feeling a bit sensitive right now. People don't appreciate me, or you know, I've, I've, I feel people. Don't, you know, I feel rejected. You know, so we kind of we put it into other different groups and patterns of of operating and actually we have to go through and begin to uncover um, a little bit more about ourselves as part of this. I don't know if that, sorry, I just, you can. No, 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 I, I, no, it makes a lot of sense. I giving me some food for thought. I was just gonna jump in earlier on to say, all this family and culture saying shame we didn't even talk about trauma and abuse yet because that definitely have can bring in a lot of shame into people's belief and core value and memory but maybe we can save that for next time because tea is for trauma anyway so we can talk about that <laughs> next time um in the new year when, when you when you say how 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 do we do with, deal with shame i i was just looking down on my sheets and realized i put down one thing where so in a, in a kind of dementia that's called frontal temporal dementia. So for those of you who are not medical, so basically the front and the side part, temporal side part of dementia, there's a specific pattern. When these area of the brain is affected, um, the, the patient with this kind of uh, dementia actually a, mo a lot of the time would display socially inappropriate behavior. And I mean, it's really rather inappropriate. They masturbate yeah, um, in public, yeah, in the nursing home that I used to work in. Um, they flash people and, and, and it seems to be a trend. It's one of the symptoms that rather signifies that we lost that inhibition when, when this, these two parts of the brain has been affected. And when I, when I link it back a little bit, again, coming back, back to the free brain model where, you know, the, the brain stem, the, the smallest part in the middle, kind of just at the top of our spinal cord, that is the 
tactile brain that helps us with the basic function of like breathing, sleeping, um, hunger, design, uh, hunger, and things like that. And the one slightly above it, start going into our memories, the mouse, uh, the the, uh, the mammal brain, and then the really higher cortex, which is why our brain is so much bigger, goes to the front as well as to the back. That's the primate brain. That's the kind of the executive function. I think it's because we have that executive function, we naturally develop this inhibition system that, that we learned or we, we, we kind of inherited this ability to uphold moral, to reflect, to, to, um, to kind of almost in some way restrict ourselves. Otherwise, we can literally do anything because we're so capable. And, and I, I, when, when you say, what do we do about it? And I suddenly realized, well, if we all have it, maybe we just have to accept it. And except that is part of us, just like maybe I think we, we kind of drew similar conclusion in anger, maybe, which is some, mm. something that Rani was asking, but I, I shame definitely causes a lot of anger and frustration. I can see that in a lot of people. But in acceptance of shame, um, kind of like what I, what I said earlier on, it, you know, recognizing that knowing shame just means that you know your own shortcoming kind of give you more opportunity and it becomes less painful sometimes. Or, or you transform the pain a little bit. It's no longer pain, pain. You, it's, it gives you the pain that maybe is the growing, growing pain. And again, I, I'm definitely not saying that I don't have shame. I do have as much as the next person. Um, but I, I, I come to think of the example of me in training. Now, Colin, you have trained me for some times and uh, <laughs> some, some, <laughs> some other people here might have seen me in trainings as well. I got into this habit of whenever, you know, when, when, when there's a lecture or there's a tutorial or your course leader asks a question first thing in the morning, you know, you just arrive, you set your hello, you quieten down, the course leader asks you a question. Stun silent, right? Like literally, you can go on for five minutes if no one said anything and if the course leader is happy and introvert. And I kind of got into the habit, I was like, I would usually be that person to bring the silence and start answering. Because I realized the thing that stopped me from answering the question is one, feeling embarrassed that I'll get it wrong. Like, oh God, they even know anything, especially I'm a doctor. And if there's anything anatomically related, I got it wrong, so whoopsie. I feel very, very warm now and start sweating and turning very bright red. But the other part of it is I don't want to draw that attention all towards myself or, you know, be seen as the know-it-all. But then I realized that is my own limitation to myself because the, the reason I was there to the training is to learn. And the longer the silence is, the less likely I'm going to learn unless I'm, you know, learn to sit like a Buddha. So that's why I was like, okay, I'm going to change a little bit just to see if I can answer and just move it on even if I got the wrong answer and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work hmm. uh, but so that that is my own example it's like okay I know why I feel shameful why I will feel embarrassed why is it holding me back and let's let me do something different I don't know if it's the right thing to do or not I, I'll keep trying and then and let, let you know but I think I think that will be my answer to your question how do we what do we do with shame Okay. It's, it's, it's actually a very good idea. It's, it's, it's a, sort of the number one step is to look to replace the, the, this kind of this way of working with a different way of working. So it's almost the first step is to do something differently. Um, now, the question is, when I'm 
looking to do something differently, am I moving something round on the surface versus dealing with what's underneath? And if I'm not aware of something deeper, is there any reason or purpose to actually change anything around on the surface? Or is actually by starting to change something around on the surface, will it start to begin to expose the deeper issues that we need to start to look at as part of shame? Because it is a deep embedded thing. So for me, I, I feel that this is the first step. I'd like to go through a few more directions on this. But this, if we jump back, because actually what we'll find is that when people are in shame, to tell them, I, I think you need to accept this, is might not, <laughs> no, seriously, because I've tried that. I've tried that uh, many years ago. I remember doing that and saying, I just think you need to accept this. Someone's just like, I'm trying to accept it, but I'm going to stab you. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm having, <laughs> all right. Um, and I talked to this lady about this recently. Um, and she said it's very interesting because by going through all of these things, you know, I'm, and I, I don't like the word trying, but she said, I'm trying. And she said, it's interesting because I get glimpses of things and I'm, I'm, I'm going through this. I'm, I'm looking at, I'm trying to accept, I feel that I'm carrying the weight or the burden heavy thing with me you know I still feel full of stuff which means I'm not actually accepting even though I'm, I'm sort of trying to accept things and not react to things and actually it's an imperfect journey that I'm going on and there isn't actually perfection but at least I'm actually doing something differently and I think that kind of is an interesting sort of feedback on this sort of that approach but if I go back further is that what we find is that it when we're engaging with shame, whether that's shame for ourselves or for other people, the first step is, is no statements or any judgments. You know, it's like me with knocking the bottle of wine over, you know, the, the statement or the judgment, you know, you're a donut, you're a doofus. It's these, you've got to cut these straight away. And the same is true from other people is that in order not to, continue any shame cycles we need to make sure there's no statements or any judgments and it means that we have to use questions and, and, and the reason that we use questions and especially open-ended questions becomes very important so if i know that someone's in a shame cycle or they're working and they're experiencing shame shame is quite closed do you agree it's quite tight it's, it's it, you know, there's this kind of thing like this. The mind is closed, the mind is tight. And shame has a power, it has an energy. And it actually, it, it doesn't allow the person to exist. They actually cannot exist. And it's doing this to the person. And if you're asking an open question, an open-ended question, and open questions are based on feelings, they're based on experiences. And so what that does is it actually starts to give power back to the person. Starts to give something just a little bit back to the person. So the person can just open a touch. And so if the power goes back to the person that feels the shame, it lifts them a little. 
And this is, the, for me, the starting point with regard to engaging with this, because I need to get someone to a point or I need to get someone to a stage where we can start to begin to uncover, not just move things around the surface, but uncover what's underneath. And I can't do it unless I've got a stable mind. And I need to get the person to a point of stability first before we can go into this. Otherwise, shame is not compatible with the stable mind in the Bhagavad Gita chapter two, um, where shame is mentioned. If there is instability in the mind, it just keeps this shame thing going. So the first thing we have to do is we have to begin to stabilize the mind. The first thing that we're doing with that is just begin to ask open questions, really, really open, positive questions. Because the question is, where does this thinking come from? Where does this shameful thinking come from? What's the origin? What's happening beneath the surface? And always to remember the good qualities of the person, because quite often when people are in shameful cycles, what they're doing is they never remember their good qualities at all. They find it very hard to take compliments. They'll begin to understand the difference between, you know, flattery, which is just there as a shallow type of thing to try and lift someone, and actually something genuine. And it's to find that genuine thing that they're good at which actually begins to lift them a touch. And always to remember that if what happens is that we remain on an emotional level, no good will come from it. It will just escalate more and more into disaster. So it, it means that there needs to be strong, positive statements that are very genuine open-ended questions and the capacity to move someone back to a good place. This is the beginning of chapter two of Bhagavad Gita. It's really looking at this chapter two, it's two, 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 three. There's five questions on this. It's kind of interesting. Um, and also it's to begin to get perception on ourselves and other people, because again, we take these patterns with regard to the interaction so that we would compare with other people. I like the comparison because we always look at, I always look at Stanford positive and me negative. And so if I always take that pattern, I get a problem. But if I always look at Stanford negative and me positive, we then have another pattern. And so then we have another pattern, which is Stanford positive, me positive, and neither of us negative or we have Stanford negative and me negative. And so our perception needs to be able to fluctuate between all four of these in a beautiful way to begin to start to break some of these cycles. And actually this is the goal and one of the roles that we're actually coming to take when we're interacting is to begin to uncover the, as Stanford was saying, is the, the agitated dialogue and the agitated pattern to be able to do something differently. And within that, it's to begin to observe the changes that happen when we do something differently. Because like I said with this lady, she said, I'm trying to do something differently. But actually, there's this change that happens when she does that, but she hasn't observed the change yet. I'm like, do you feel better about it? No, I don't feel better. I feel out of control. Ah, that's amazing. I feel there's something different. 
Do you see what I mean? So there's something, something has changed and to observe those changes is the next step. And I think that beyond that, it's, it's to begin to understand the way that we hear words and the way that those words have meanings and create shame and the words that other people use or society uses or media uses or the images that they use and the ones that we work with ourselves so that we understand the patterning of those things. I think that's the sort of, the, the sort of for me, these are the kind of processes of how we begin to build out of this. And again, it's, a, it's, a, it's more of a, a combination of short and longer term thing because I think that the imprint of shame is, is short and long term. So both of them. So. In the short term, one direction, the longer term, we're sort of you were working a bit more and more and more on this. I don't know. Does that make any? Yeah, I, I definitely going to try to start with asking more positive, open questions, especially with my patients, um, especially ones with social anxiety and a lot of like depression where there are more mental health issues that are associated with shame. So I definitely, definitely would try all of these techniques. And I think what you said, how 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 the one thing is trying to differentiate what is imprinted so deeply into ourselves and what is in the superficial layers, or at least the more superficial layers, and how how to kind of tackle them. Rather, you do it from changing the core beliefers or changing small everyday behavior, and hopefully that will affect the core belief. I think. One, that's always, as always, it's going to be very case-by-case -case basis, but I think it's it def definitely all very good directions mm -hmm. that we need to think about. Um, I felt like we might have to end the conversation here. I almost felt like this is like a part one of a conversation. We're going to have to lead into part two in the new year in trauma. Um, I don't know, rather, Colin see me as always positive and he's always negative, but I can only say that I'm always with the black background and he's always with a white background <laughs> i'm trying to keep that <laughs> into the new year too um but yes hopefully see maybe uh, we'll say goodbye now and see everyone in mid-january t for trauma thank you um thank you stanford i think that into in i'm really looking forward to t for trauma as well and to sum up i'm hoping that what we've done in our conversation is given a an awareness of the beauty, the complexity, and some of the issues that actually surround shame, um, that it, it is individual, it's family, it's cultural, it's societal. It is an emotion that all of us have. It does actually serve a purpose. And it's an opportunity to, opportunity to be aware of things and to change things. So it's a measure, it's a beautiful measuring stick. Um, and I don't think there's any escaping from it. I think that shame is a feeling that we should all, I, I use the word should, uh, shame is a feeling that is an opportunity and is a kind of like strange, crazy word to use, but it, it's worthwhile feeling it. It's 